Hello, I'm Izzy Cottrell and this is Space, Place and Identity, an academic discussion surrounding the notion of adolescent identity, in particular exploring the spatial elements of physical education. It's a podcast and if this is your first time listening then welcome. Put your headphones in, get comfortable and relaxed whilst I take you through a deep dive into the experiences of adolescent girls and my own personal experiences through physical education spaces relating to what was really going on inside of our heads. Due to this being an an academic discussion, I have studied the topics over a number of weeks in order to ensure that I am well informed to lead this podcast. I will be making reference to various sociologists and researchers throughout and drawing on their work to inform my own ideas and discussion points. I have also done a lot of reflecting on my own personal experiences and will bring anecdotal elements to this podcast. Something that fascinates me is the idea that people can go through the same experiences in the same places but come out feeling completely different about them. A question I've often asked myself is, why is this so? Therefore, throughout this podcast, I will explore how space and place really does have a profound effect on how we view ourselves and how we choose to shape our identities. The first question I'm going to ask today is, what is space and place? Well, sociologist Gordon et al. say that due to the ambiguity surrounding the concept of space, there have been multiple attempts to define it. They summarise the concept holistically, stating that space is physical, social and mental. Space as a concept is a relatively new area of academic study, and it has undergone a profound and sustained resurgence across all disciplines. Another sociologist, Aris, explored this further, saying that space, place mapping and geographical imaginations have become commonplace topics in a variety of analytical fields due to globalisation accentuating the significance of location. So that's a brief summary of space. Now let's explore how space differs from place. The work of Beatley helps to provide an answer to this, as they state that place is a space that has been given a meaning through personal, group and cultural processes. As people start to shape the spaces around them, they begin to take control and feel safe, which allows spaces to be transformed into places. Sociologist Riley added to this by identifying gender, ethnicity, class, faith and generation as factors that can shape how individuals experience, respond to and identify with place. If I apply this to my own experiences, I think I was lucky in the fact that my gender never really impacted how I experienced certain places throughout my life. For example, when I was at secondary school, I identified as one of the sporty kids. Everyone knew that sport was my thing and it was where I felt most comfortable. I always felt accepted in a sporting environment and never felt that being a girl held me back in any way. I guess for me, PE and sport played a massive role in my life 
as it's where I truly became the version of who I am today. I've met some of my best friends through sport and it's a big part of who I am. PE and sport was a huge factor of my sixth form life and I would say it is one of the main reasons as to why I was able to get through my A-levels. Being involved in sport made me realise that people get behind you. They respect you for doing what you do. If you try a sport and you're not very good at it, whether it be running in a 100 metre race or playing football or hitting a tennis ball, you have enormous respect for people who can do those things. When someone comes along and excels at something which you know is tough, I think it creates an appreciation, a respect and you want to be around them. I know I certainly did and this is why I chose to surround myself by people who were good at what they did. It inspired me to keep pushing and striving to be better. This probably links to my childhood experiences and also my personality as well. From a young age, my school reports have always been really positive. However, there has always, without fail, been a comment on there somewhere saying, Izzy's high standards can sometimes be a detriment to her as she strives to be a perfectionist in every aspect of her school career. This can sometimes cause her to stress and work at a slower pace due to wanting to get it perfect all of the time. Thinking about this, it's something, it's something which I've worked really hard on. I'm really grateful that I've learnt to let go and not worry so much about what people will think of me or that I need to redo that piece of work because it could have been better when I've already spent way too much time working on it. As I've got older, I've learnt to relax and realise that there are more important things in life than getting everything perfect all of the time. This isn't to say that I don't still set myself really high standards but they are personal standards which I try to only impose on myself. Anyway, I've gone off on a bit of a tangent here, but that's what the study of space tends to make you do. The concepts and theories encompassed in the notion of space often lead a person to reflect and introspect on aspects of their own lives due to the sociological nature of the study. I can fully appreciate and recognise that PE and sport is not such a comfortable place for many people, and sadly it's a place where many people feel at their worst. I had peers at school who hated PE, and I always thought this was really sad. But now, thinking about it, I can see why it made some of them feel so uncomfortable with it being such a body-based subject. As a physical educator of the future myself, it's really important for me to be aware of how space affects people in everyday activities. In fact, Kirk and Tinnin suggest that physical education lessons may be reinforcing dysfunctional connections between physical activity, body shape and self-identity. When considering the concept of space, it's important to realise that it really does have a huge influence on how we view an experience, whether we create positive or negative memories about the thing we were experiencing. After talking to some of my friends, it became clear that everyone had different opinions about what space meant to them and how they felt it had affected them throughout their lives. One of my closest friends revealed that she had thought about the concept of space quite a bit because she'd heard the word headspace. And it made her think that space isn't just a physical thing, but it's also mental. She went on to say that there is also a social side of space. 
She recognised the physical element where we can be physically with each other and other people in a space, whether it be in a big open space or whether it's in a small room. She said that that definitely made a difference to how she felt. She then went on to think about PE and her own experience, experiences and we had a conversation surrounding the nature of indoor lessons versus outdoor lessons. For her, she much preferred indoor lessons as it wasn't cold and was much more comfortable than going outside and having to be out in the elements. She said that if she was inside, she felt much more likely to put in more effort and try harder and she felt much more comfortable and could recognise this in many of her other peers as well. To me, it sounded as though she felt that the indoor environment created more of a relaxed atmosphere, and maybe this is something to be aware of when PE teachers are planning for female provision. Reflecting on this discussion, I found it really interesting to hear that, although we had been through very, very similar experiences in the same lessons at the same school, we felt quite differently about how we remembered these times. Personally, I loved going outside, no matter what the weather, as it was a chance to escape the classroom environment and feel free. However, it made me again realise that PE can often be an uncomfortable part of school for many teenage girls, and this is backed up by research conducted by Cockburn and Clark, which shows that teenage girls are often prone to having to battle with their identity due to body image issues faced around the time when they experienced puberty. Walseth found that teenage girls were often put off the idea of participating in PE due to fear of ruining their appearance. They didn't want to appear sweaty or masculine in any way, so it was sometimes favourable to put in limited effort in order to maintain their image. And I guess this links back to elements of the conversation that I was having with my friends. Also, Marita, McCabe and Lena state that due to puberty and experiencing rapid developments within their bodies, teenage girls can often feel uncomfortable about taking part in PE due to issues surrounding kit and the practicality of the subject. Thinking back to my own experiences at school, I can remember countless examples of when girls would hand our PE teachers notes asking to be excused from the lesson because they weren't feeling well, when actually they were just on their period but they were so scared that wearing their PE kit would expose this. I remember when I first started my period, being really worried about having to wear the PE shorts, as we were meant to be going to an athletics competition that afternoon. As I've previously said, I was really sporty, so it was very unusual for me not to take part in a sporting opportunity, but I pretended to be ill and told my teacher that I wasn't well enough to come and that someone else was going to have to do it for me. Like I said, I was a really sporty kid and I'm still really sporty now and due to my netball commitments I exercise and train multiple times a week even when I'm on my period. But I think that when I was younger, say 12 or 13 years old, it was a really strange time where everything was new. Your body is growing and changing in ways that it never has done before and therefore PE can become quite an uncomfortable environment due to it being a body-based subject where you often feel pretty exposed. Moving on a little bit, another sociologist who looked at the concept of space is Lefebvre, and Lefebvre tried to make sense of society using the concept of a city to further explain his ideas. 
So if I break this down, what Lefebvre was saying is that society can be pictured as a city. As we know, cities possess a centre where the hustle and bustle takes place. There is often a lot of power inside a city. Government buildings and businesses are located there and big decisions are made inside of those places. But then you've also got the suburbs. These are typically quieter, the place where everyday citizens are. And Lefebvre would state that those in the interior, inside, at the heart of the city, are the ones who make all of the decisions. They decide who amongst the insiders should be expelled and excluded, and whether or not to open their doors to any of those people from the suburbs. Again, I was talking about this concept the other day with one of my peers from university, and we had similar views relating to whether we thought this concept had been at play throughout our own school careers. They said that they felt that when they were at school, it was the teachers that were in control most of the time. For them, the teachers controlled who they were with and what spaces they used. I agree with this to a large extent, as if you think about the actual lessons, then yeah, the teachers did generally decide who we worked with and in what space we worked due to seating plans. There were also restrictions of spaces due to the actual architecture of the buildings. But I also feel that we had quite a bit of power as well within ourselves, as we chose who we shared our space with during social times who we invited in and who we maybe repelled because we didn't see them as somebody who we could relate to or who we wanted to share with. Cook and Hemming state that there are many power dynamics at play within education. Recalling my conversation with my friend, she identified that she felt as though the teachers had the power in most situations and this links to Foucault's idea of biopower. Biopower encompasses the idea that humans can be managed in large groups it allows, for the, it allows for the control of entire populations. If we view the students within the school as the population, then it could be argued that teachers exert a form of biopower over the students, as due to the school rules enforced by the teachers, the student population's behaviour is controlled and standardised. However, it can also be argued that the students exert power within their friendship groups, and a particular power that they may use is referent power, which is defined by Lingstad as a power that is all about the quality of relationship developed with others and how those relationships are built. Therefore, in order to create a collective identity, students may use this type of power to establish common values and beliefs within their groups. I know this is true from my own school experiences, as inevitably, there were groups at school who were friends because they shared the same perceived identities. For example, the so-called popular group, the lads, the nerds, the weirdos, the girly girls and the sporty ones. The idea of power can also be related to the layout of a school. The concept of space has extensive links with matters surrounding power and surveillance, which O'Donoghue argues can exert a significant effect on, on an individual's behaviour through embodiment of values, beliefs and traditions that are constructed, regulated and constituted through various authoritative forces. Spaces have the power to control and shape what is done within them, as well as being shaped by it through the social and mental processes of spatial praxis. School buildings often embody notions of pedagogy, meaning space is an essential constitu constituent of teaching and learning. Lefebvre states that the architecture of a building can be viewed as a representation of society, reflecting values and cult 
culture and ultimately having a profound effect on its occupants. Gallagher explains that there are many researchers who have drawn parallels between schools and Foucault's panoptic model of power and due to this it has enabled them to uncover important features relating to how power operates within educational institutions. The panopticon is a Foucauldian concept relating to surveillance based on Bentham's all-seeing building design. By utilising space and maximising visibility, individuals are induced into believing that they are under surveillance at all times, resulting in the panoptic gaze coercing them into becoming their own controlling agents. Foucault built, built on the work of Bentham's panopticon and viewed it more as a programme of power which completely codified the principles of disciplinary political anatomy rather than an architectural system. Through this work, Foucault developed the term docile bodies in an attempt to understand how power is exercised over, over a population. They concluded that docile bodies are ideal in a capitalist society as they are politically obedient and economically efficient making it beneficial to a bourgeois society. Relating this theory back to the layout of a school, Foucault suggests that the physical layout of a school can cause a panoptic gaze to become internalised within the institution and acts as a deterrent for deviant behaviour. This encourages a form of self-surveillance and advocates pupils to act as their own disciplinarian. Another interesting aspect of many schools' architecture is the positioning of subject departments within the layout of the school. At the heart of many schools lies the traditional EBAC subjects such as English, Maths and Science, with the subjects that are typically viewed as less academic, such as PE, Music and the Arts, positioned around the very edges. It makes me question whether this is evidence of the academic ideology which Green argues is embedded within the current structure of education, influencing space use within the school. If I think back to the layout of my own secondary school, it conformed with what I've just stated. We had the head teacher's office and the main hall at the very centre of the building, and then off of this were the maths and English corridors. From here led into science and modern foreign languages, and the music, art and PE buildings were much further out. James explains that PE is often marginalised and undervalued within the current curriculum due to not being recognised as a core subject. I think it's fair to say that within our country there is a curriculum hierarchy at play which claims that elite curriculum content is theoretical whilst content associated with practicality and the body is seen to have a lower status. The positioning of the subject departments at my old secondary school could suggest the existence of a similar ideology despite it being a school which heavily valued extracurricular participation and its sporting success. I've explored space as a sociological concept, but now I want to investigate the idea that space isn't just physical. It's not just what we see in front of us, the room we're sat in or the buildings that are part of our everyday lives. There's also metaphorical space, the space we can't necessarily see, but it's definitely space that still affects us. An example of this would be our headspace. For me, my headspace is often quite a conflicting place to be. It's the way I function and think, the way I get through everyday activities, but it's also a space that I often have to battle with. 
It's a space that never really switches off and one that I sometimes feel like I can't escape from. It's sounding pretty negative, isn't it? Headspace is definitely a complicated one. However, it's also a great place to be. It's a, it's a place where I can privately celebrate my successes and allow myself to feel proud of what I've achieved. So if I think about the concept of headspace, that's what it means to me. I think it's something that, definite, that has definitely come to the forefront in the last few years. If I think about when I was younger, there wasn't really that much around to sort of make me aware of the topic. But now, luckily, there's a lot more emerging and hopefully it carries on so that people are more equipped to deal with the tricky space that is our headspace. But now we're going to look at a piece of research. So in more recent times, the notion of mental health and headspace has become more prominent. Research conducted by the charity Mind shows that the amount of young people with common mental health problems went up by 20% between 1993 and 2014, and that the number of young women reporting common mental health problems has been increasing year on year. I was thinking about this, and sadly, I wasn't that shocked by these statistics. In fact, I thought that the numbers would be higher. It made me wonder whether some of it was due to the pressures that adolescent girls experience today, such as the unrealistic social media standards and body image portrayals, and it could be argued that this is a leading contributor towards the rise in poor mental health amongst this population. I for one know that I am so thankful that I didn't grow up during the Instagram model and TikTok generation as I feel that the standards portrayed via these mediums are so far-fetched and unattainable. It's something that me and my friends regularly speak about, and I can recall countless times where we've been so thankful that we grew up in the friendship group that we did, as it was one that valued us all for who we truly were. We didn't have to worry about the latest makeup trends or what clothes we were in. We could just enjoy being in each other's company and forget about the materialistic things that others our age were obsessed by. Something which worries me as a future PE teacher myself is the pressure that teenage girls are under to conform to certain body image ideals and standards. I think that many teenagers are now growing up in an ego-orientated world which focuses, which focuses on comparison, causing detrimental effects on their self-esteem and motivation. Thinking back to my own time at school, it was very obvious in PE who was going to be valued and picked to be on a team compared to who everyone viewed as being a bit rubbish or lazy or whatever. This could potentially link to the Bordeauxian concepts of habitus and capital. Brown and Seisman state that habitus refers to the way people act and form belief systems. Society comprises of numerous fields, each of which have a structure based upon the differentiation and dispersion of capital. Bordeaux explains that within a field, capital is unequally distributed and this generates a power dimension where the most favourable capital was reproduced in that field. Bordeaux expanded on Karl Marx's work on capital and stated that other forms of capital include physical, social, cultural and symbolic capital rather than just solely economic capital. According to Schilling, physical capital relates to the symbolic value of the exterior of the body in the form of physique, weight and looks. O'Donovan and Kirk state that within PE, within a PE environment, physical capital is determined by the comparison of bodies to the socially constructed ideal body. 
This links back to what I was saying before. For a teenage girl, there is so much pressure surrounding having an ideal body in order to fit in to the desired physical capital. Thinking back to my own experiences at school, I don't think I was that aware of the pressure that some girls felt they were under to have the ideal body. I was reasonably body confident. I mean, things weren't perfect. I sometimes wished that my legs were a bit longer, but they were only passing thoughts, and the majority of the time, I, it didn't even cross my mind. However, for some girls, it was all they could think about. The fact that they didn't look like that model on Instagram, or they didn't look like the so-called popular girls or the sporty ones. The conflict they felt in their identities may have led them to feeling very uncomfortable within the PE environment. For them, the idea of wearing PE kit might have been like being asked to present a PowerPoint presentation in their underwear. It was just unthinkable. That's definitely something that when I was at school, I knew there were girls that didn't like PE. I didn't always absolutely love it, not every single lesson. It depended on what we were doing. But it was my form of release, and it was a subject where I felt best. But I never sort of thought in much detail. This PE kit is probably causing a lot of stress to some girls. Or this lesson is probably like the worst place they could possibly be right now. There are also other forms of capital which have an effect on how teenage girls experience PE. And Dagcast explains that social capital refers to friends and peers, as well as skills and abilities learned as a result of belonging to a specific social group. Hunter et al. state that habitus derives from this through the socialising fields of family and schooling, rather than through learned rules and principles. They also suggest that cultural capital relates to culturally desirable attributes and possessions and socially valued practices of that field. The amount of capital a person possesses can certainly explain why some students feel at home in PE and others feel totally lost and as though they are outsiders. For example, thinking back to my days at school, an individual like myself who possessed more physical capital was often seen as more desirable in the PE context. They would often fit the ideal having a relatively athletic body and they're usually known for having a reputation of being more competent within physical activity. However, for the girls that possessed a lower physical capital, PE could often be an uncomfortable place for them to be. They may not have fitted that athletic ideal or been that physically skilled, and possibly because of this, they subconsciously developed the idea that PE was not the place for them. Symbolic capital is also something to be aware of, and this is acquired through the transformation of other forms of capital. Bordeaux explains that it is a form of capital that is known and recognised and is associated with power. After reading his work, it became obvious to me that he expressed the idea that these symbolic relations of power are responsible for the reinforcement and reproduction of power relations within a structure of social space. Symbolic capital can also act as a tool, helping us to construct our habitus and can determine how people act within social fields, and because of this, it has strong links with identity. According to Jenkins, as we move through fields, our habitus and identity may shift due to the amount of capital we possess. This is why, as mentioned previously, those who have a greater physical capital may be desired within a PE environment. However, they may not hold the same status in other areas of the school. I can say that this was definitely true of myself, as I held quite a lot of physical capital. Therefore, I was desirable in a PE environment, 
but put me in a maths classroom and this was a completely different story. When in certain social fields, our habitus can instruct us to subconsciously conform to the doxa uh, and the rules of the field, which were labelled by Bordeaux as the doxa. The doxa gives individuals a practical sense of how to act in a field and also what actions are most appropriate. Sociologist Hunter et al. note that this provides a sense of belonging. However, those who do not share the same beliefs run the risk of being excluded. If the doxa of a field is not challenged or questioned, then sociologist Larson states that it will continue to guide and limit possibilities. When thinking about PE, the curriculum is often dominated by games, and this could be why. The habitus of PE teachers usually results in them having a predisposition to favour traditional games due to their own experiences within physical education, and therefore they replicate this within their own practice. Again, if I think about my own school days, we definitely had one PE teacher who encompassed traditional games in their habitus. They constantly chose to teach us hockey, football, netball and rounders, and rarely, rarely strayed from this. However, we were lucky as we also had a teacher who valued the use of other activities and taught us things such as aerobics, yoga, dance and fitness based things. I think a lot of the girls were grateful for this balance as it helped to encourage the ones who weren't necessarily games players to find an activity that they liked. However, sadly this isn't the case in enough schools and can often be a reason as to why many teenage girls despise PE. Moving on again, I now want to look at the concept of identity. Identity is a term that has been debated extensively over the years due to the diverse assumptions of what it actually is. Buckingham states that identity is something that we all uniquely possess that distinguishes us from others. However, it also signifies a relationship with a social group and in some ways is something we share with others. Foucault's theory on identity rejects the idea that identity is fixed and stated that it does not limit people to particular roles. However, this theory differs from Giddens, who suggested that we all have traditionally found ourselves in roles that have been clearly defined by gender, age and sexuality. Linking this to PE, many adolescent girls would state that you can easily identify a number of different groups such as the sporty ones, the popular girls, the girly girls and the weirdos. I know that this was sadly true when I was at school. In the changing rooms, it was almost as though everyone has set places to get changed in, even though nobody had ever told us that that was how it had to be. Therefore, this is evidence that we were all following a doxer. The so-called popular group always got changed near the showers, as it's the area of the changing rooms that had the most space and it was also round a corner, so it enabled them to have an exclusive and somewhat private space. The rest of us got changed at the benches and the girls that were seen as the outsiders or the nerds or the weirdos tended to get changed towards the edges of the room. I know now that this sounds so bad, but it links with Buckingham's ideas as they state that social identity is formed through perceived membership within a social group. If you weren't in that popular group, you didn't dare go and get changed in the showers, as you knew it wasn't your place. However, 
Goffman argues that there is distinction between an individual's personal and social identity. He claims that social identity can be seen as a front stage behaviour, as people aim to make an impression on others within a social space, whereas personal, personal identity is viewed as backstage behaviour and is seen to be a truer version of an individual's and their real identity. Again, linking this back to the change rooms at school, you could say that the area you got changed in was determined by your front stage identity, how you were perceived in certain social groups. Lots of girls tended to drift towards others who had shared a similar social identity rather than personal identity within this particular PE setting. This backs up, this backs up the work of Jenkins, who suggested that hierarchies are a collective identification and they often conflict with hierarchies of individual identification. Another issue which lots of girls experience in the changing rooms is the fact that they feel their body is very much on show. The changing rooms are a field within physical culture where the display of the body is an integral element of practice and where notions of acceptable feminine embodied identities are reinforced. O'Donovan and Kirk suggest that changing rooms are sites for surveillance where a measure of physical capital is determined by comparing bodies to socially constructed ideals. The socially constructed body ideals influence the reproduction of cultural norms and pressures teenage girls to become concerned with bodywork, to manage presentation of self. This has often resulted in management, maintenance and appearance of the body becoming a primary focus for girls within the changing rooms, as they may feel conscious of how others perceive them. O'Donovan and Kirk investigated female experiences in the changing room spaces and explained that many girls feel exposed and open to objectification when changing. Work by Gurdon also found that these feelings often resulted in self-exclusion from physical activity. Therefore, this may sadly explain some of the reasons as to why there is an increase in dropout rate relating to female participation from the age of 14 onwards. Overall, this podcast has aimed to explore ideas relating to adolescent girls' experiences of physical education and to evaluate the influence of PE and educational spaces on power relations and individuals' identity. From producing this podcast, I've learned that there are definitely power relations that have a profound effect upon individuals within the school community, and I'd be confident to say that personally, I don't feel enough has been done to combat the negative effects that arise from struggles within these power relations. After analysing the architecture of my old school, it's apparent to see that it fits with Lefebvre's claim that it is influenced by everyday practices, as I realise that the school subjects that are currently viewed as more academic are located closer to the centre of the school. It has also become evident that the theme of capital arises through the somewhat competitive and body-based nature of physical education, and that there is a constant debate between academics as to whether competition and the traditional games ideology helps or hinders teenage girls' progress in PE. Through analysis of capital within PE spaces, I am confident to say that it can be concluded that PE often emphasises capital and therefore a hierarchy is created where some individuals hold more power and status than others.
After evaluating identity and the body within the changing rooms, it can be recommended that more should be done by PE teachers to reduce the anxiety that some girls experience within this environment, whether that be having looser restrictions on the type of kit girls are asked to wear or giving more opportunities for private changing. And finally, I would like to state that more work needs to be done to ensure that all females have positive experiences within PE in order to prevent self-exclusion from physical activity. If only some of these changes were implemented, there could be significant impacts made on increasing the likelihood of more females developing lifelong participation habits, which would be an extremely positive thing, as it's a key aim of physical education. I've been Izzy Cottrell, and this has been Space, Place and Identity. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you take something valuable away from this podcast. Until next time, goodbye.